few years ago, uh, I preached through Paul's letter to the Romans. And it was 80 messages stretched out over nearly three years. So uh, as we make our way through the Gospel according to Luke, we will definitely be taking our breaks here and there. We may take off a couple months at a time, uh, especially when it comes to summer and people go. We might do a short series and something else or other. And uh, But it's going to take us quite a while to get through this Gospel because it is the longest book in the New Testament. Um, there are other books with more chapters. Matthew and Acts are both longer chapter-wise. But if you uh, flip through Luke, you'll notice that Luke's chapters are very long. In fact, the first chapter is 80 verses. The second is 52. And, and usually they top out at 40 plus. So um, where Romans might be, say, 25 verses a chapter or so, uh, Luke uh, has a, a lot more material. So we're going to be covering today Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 4. We may make it next week all the way down to, to verse 25. Um, because, you know, when you get into the actual narrative, into the stories themselves, you can cover pretty big chunks. But today, as an introduction, we'll be looking at only verses 1 to 4. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Father, as we begin this morning in a new portion for us of your word, I pray, Father, that we would begin with your blessing. And I pray, Father, that we would begin with every heart and every mind engaged and everyone in this room, Father, and those who will join us from time to time, through this book, uh, pleading and looking to you. I pray that everyone would be pleading to know Jesus and to know you through your Son. I pray that every heart would be seeking your face and yours alone. Lord, we want to draw near. We want to be faithful. So I pray that Lord, you would give us that seeking, pleading, and longing heart because we don't have it on our own. Father, we confess to you that we will be distracted by pretty much everything under the sun, outside of your truth and your Son, our Lord Jesus. So, Father, give us a heart to hear. Give us a heart to follow. Give us hearts that will worship in spirit and truth. Pour out, we ask, your Holy Spirit, that we may have these hearts to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Luke, who was not an apostle, in fact, um, We don't believe that he was even a first-generation disciple. You may remember, I'm sure you remember, the 12 apostles. And then after Jesus had risen and ascended back into heaven, he left 120 faithful who were meeting together when the Holy Spirit was poured out from God in heaven. 
he was not even among those original 120 disciples. Uh, Most likely, Luke was a second-generation disciple. We also know uh, that, well, this is most likely, again, that he was a Gentile. We see throughout uh, the record of Acts and the the, uh, epistles of Paul that Luke was a colleague of the Apostle Paul's. But uh, here we find this Gentile, the only uh, one writing in the New Testament, writing to a fellow Gentile by the name of Theophilus. Let's read these uh, opening words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I want you to keep your place there and quickly turn over two books to the right to the book of Acts. Something that's important for us to recognize right at the beginning of this gospel is that this is in fact a two-volume work. Luke never intended and The Holy Spirit, who, of course, was superintending this process, never intended that Luke be a standalone work. It's a two-volume work. We see this in the first couple verses of Acts. Luke writes here, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, so there it is. Luke and Acts go hand in hand. And uh, likely, I don't know even how how convinced uh, I can be in saying this. Um, Let me just say I would like to go from Luke into Acts. But uh, we're looking at... (laughs) I don't know how many years we're looking at if we we attempt that. Anyway, it it would be good, and we'd all benefit immensely. In in any case, let's get back to this. I am sure that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, not just merely the intellectual type of believer— who recognizes mentally that says, you know, yes, I believe Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that he came to this earth, was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross in place of sinners as a substitute, and that he rose on the third day. I believe those things. Check, 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 check. No, more than that. If not only you recognize those things, but you have received Christ personally as the Lord, the Savior, and the treasure of your soul. I believe then that you have longing for Jesus. I know that that longing will vary, even sometimes from day to day. We are so quickly um, dulled toward Jesus. We must be so careful to keep up prayer meditation on the word, and as soon as we let these good things slip, 
Often Jesus seems to slip away from us, from our hearts. But all believers know the experience of longing to know God and longing to draw near to him. And in my personal experience, when there have been times of just intense longing and urgency to know God, I have often felt in hand with that longing, this urgency to get into the Gospels, into one of those books that begin the New Testament written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because there is nothing quite like looking directly at Jesus. It is so important that we read the Old Testament and look forward to Jesus with anticipation and hope, hearing, receiving the promises concerning the coming Christ. It is absolutely essential that we look back on Jesus in the New Testament letters and revelation and unpack who he was and what he did, the explanation of Jesus. But there's nothing like looking directly at Jesus. It's in the Gospels that we stand. We, you have to enter the narrative. This is what you must do in reading the Bible. This is not just a book outside of you telling a story about uh, a distant God and what he did for a distant people and such. This book is for you and for me. We are to enter into this narrative ourselves. And this is what we must do when it comes to the Gospels. We stand in the crowd in Galilee. And we hear the call of Jesus ourselves. We see his works and we're compelled and we're astounded and we're drawn. We join the crowd of disciples. and We make our way with Jesus as he sets his face to Jerusalem. We hear his warning, telling us that there is coming suffering, telling us that we must count the cost, and we go on anyway, we follow. We stand with that crowd outside the city of Jerusalem, and we look upon the suffering Savior, upon the cross, in the place of guilty sinners. And we mourn him. We're with the disciples in the upper room, fearful, thinking that it's all over now and everything's hopeless. We're with them in the Gospels when Jesus comes in, suddenly appearing, resurrected, new, glorious, urging us to believe. And we're with the disciples again as we go out as far as Bethany and receive his blessing and hear his command to go, to preach the gospel, to preach repentance in the name of Christ to the nations. We're with them as we see Jesus ascend, get wrapped up in the clouds and disappear and go to the Father's right hand. We're with them as we go back into Jerusalem with joy and worship in the temple and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what we do in the Gospels. That's what we're going to do in the book of Luke. And there's just nothing like being there 
and looking on the face of Jesus and hearing his words. Why does Luke write? You know, that's something that we try. I've very explicitly tried to do over the last couple of years. I've tried to make it a habit whenever we've gone through the book of the Bible to establish from the beginning why this writer was writing, why the Holy Spirit gave to this penman a specific message from God. What was the purpose? So what we've tried to do as we've gone through books of the Bible or longer passages, maybe not an entire book, whatever, we've tried to establish a concise, specific purpose statement for the writing. And I'm, I'm not ready to do that yet with the Gospel of Luke as my study goes on. But you may have noticed that right from the beginning, Luke does tell us why he writes. So I'm not going to come up with a purpose statement, per se, that we'll, we'll use through the whole book as we go. But So I'm, I'm still working on putting that together. But we can see in these first few verses why Luke is writing. And we'll get to that in a second. But I just want you to know that this is pretty important. When we come to any book of the Bible, we're not just looking at random instructions or looking at stories that are just loosely thrown together to tell us about Jesus. Every writer by the Holy Spirit was writing for a specific purpose. When, when Paul wrote to the church, he wasn't just, you know, shooting the breeze, saying, how's the weather over there? It's pretty good here. You guys still following Jesus? Me too. Let's keep after it. It wasn't like that at all. There were very specific purposes for which they wrote. Now, Luke says, and I'm going to get to the purpose in a moment, but Luke says right here at the beginning that many people have already put their hand to compiling a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That is, so many people had already put together an oral history or a written history of the words and the works of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Luke isn't the first. Um, Scholarship pretty much universally says that the earliest gospel that was written was the gospel according to Mark. And Matthew and Luke followed and both used Mark as a source. But uh, I know that this won't be very interesting for some of you, but you know we can uh, put a specific date on when Luke wrote because here, here's how we can do this. If you go to the book of Acts, which is, again, the second volume in this two-volume work, if you go to the end of Acts, you'll find that the Apostle Paul is still in prison in Jerusalem. And Luke says that for two years, Paul was welcoming visitors. He was under house arrest, but he was receiving visitors, and he was preaching to everybody that came to him the kingdom of God while he's awaiting trial before Caesar. Well, if we compare that to Paul's letters, we know that Paul was most likely, and I'm, I'm quite convinced of this, that he was, in, he was released from that imprisonment. And he made his way to Spain, as he hoped to do. You may remember he wrote that to the Romans. He made his way to Spain, was eventually rearrested, put on trial again. And the last letter he wrote was his letter to Timothy. So there's a couple things that Luke doesn't mention, which would be really important to the story, if Luke knew that they had already occurred. One was, what was the fate of Paul in Rome? He doesn't say. He doesn't talk about his release. He doesn't say he was executed. 
And another thing is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, which in the gospel, according to Luke, Luke talks about Jesus prophesying. Jesus made it very clear that Jerusalem, the city, was going to be destroyed. And we know, it's common knowledge, that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. So Luke doesn't talk about that, so he must have written before AD 70. And he doesn't talk about Paul's release from his first imprisonment in Rome, so it must have been before that. So we're looking at the early 60s, say 30 years, no more than 35 years since Jesus had finished his work on earth. And already, he says, there have been a number of people before him who have compiled a narrative of the things that Jesus did. One of them, again, being Mark. So it's generally uh, believed that Mark would have written in sometime in the 50s. Um, now, this is important for, for various reasons, but really none of them pertain to what we're studying today, so I won't go on and on about that. But Luke considers all of the different histories that have been put together, and he is moved by the Holy Spirit to put his hand to the task as well. And that's what he attempts, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. Let, let me get to the purpose for which he wrote. It says that it seemed good to him also, having followed everything closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? Here it is. Here's the purpose. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He wants Theophilus and everybody who's in the same boat, and that would include you and me, to have certainty about Jesus. And I want to establish two things and focus especially as we move on on the second. But the first is we must have certainty of the truth of Jesus. And, and, and Luke is very helpful in this because Luke is a first-rate historian. If you will compare Luke to the other gospel writers, you'll notice that Luke... Um, uh, recounts the events of Jesus' life very, very precisely when it comes to historic details. In fact, if you look in verse 5, he talks about in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. That kind of detail is um, often reported on in Luke because he wants to locate what Jesus did historically. He wants to be very precise and careful with the facts of the events of Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, and so on. You know, there have been a lot of skeptics when it comes to the history of the Bible. There was one by the name of Sir William Ramsey, who was an historian himself, who, when he came to the Bible, uh, came with a lot of preconceived notions and, and doubts and so on. And when he got into Luke's gospel, all of these preconceived skepticisms were put to rest by Luke's very careful, precise reporting of the things that have happened. Again, I want to remind you that Luke was not the first to report. And this is important. If, let's say, if six men from the ancient past 
wrote early about events that had taken place in their lifetimes, and we still had the record of their writings today, everyone would believe what they said. In fact, we have a lot of ancient history comes to us from maybe one individual who is writing long, long after the events, and we generally tend to believe what they say. We've got Matthew, we've got Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and Peter, the the six foremost writers of the New Testament, who have worked and independently verified these reports concerning Jesus. Now, the critics will say, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible, because you know what I want to say is, there was a man named Matthew who said this about Jesus, and Mark said the same, and there was a guy named Luke who said the same thing, and then there was John, and then we have Paul, and we have Peter, and if Mark said what Matthew said, now we've got two witnesses, and if Luke said what they, the others two, other two said, we've got three witnesses, now we've got six witnesses, and they'll say, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible, that's nothing but circular reasoning. But they're wrong. That, that statement that they're making is rather ignorant. Just because all of these individual reports are bound in one book doesn't mean that they are separate witnesses. So we have six witnesses, and if you include uh, James and Jude, also writers of the New Testament, now we have eight writers putting together 27 books for us in the New Testament, all concerning Jesus, pointing us to Jesus. We have eight, eight witnesses here with one message. It's not what we have here is one book in the sense that it was authored by God. But altogether, we've got 66 books, Old and New Testaments, at least 40 different authors, writing over 1,500 years' time, each shining their light on one. One who is the one Son of God and bringing to us the one way of salvation. We can be quite certain of the truth of Jesus. And I think that's the first thing that Luke wants to establish with Theophilus, and hence the very specific reporting. He wants them to be certain concerning the things he's been taught. They are historically reliable reports. Have you ever thought about how Christianity got off the ground in the first place? And, and really, if it wasn't true, how impossible it would have been for Christianity to get off the ground. Because uh, think about how the, the world religions all got their start. Okay? With Muhammad, about 1,500 years ago, or Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, 1800s, both of them reported these private encounters with either God or private encounter with an angel. So here is one man who had a private encounter going to the public with what he saw. Okay? Or, say, Hinduism or Buddhism, you have private theories. Private theories which aren't open to 
evaluation and, and testing, not open to the uh, investigations of science or history or anything like that. But these private theories are private philosophies, again, going out to the public. But there's a big difference with Christianity, isn't there? Christianity is, in fact, the most falsifiable religion on earth. Not false, falsifiable. Because everything that happened, happened in public. Jesus came publicly. It wasn't a private encounter with one individual. He came publicly, and he had a public ministry to thousands upon thousands of people in Palestine. He made public claims and gave public teachings. All the works, most of the works that he did, were in public. He was crucified publicly, and he made his appearances to the public. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he appeared to more than five hundred of his followers at one time following his resurrection. Everything is public. Everything. Let me read something. I'll reveal, uh, review some of what I have already said. Okay. Christianity is the world's most falsifiable religion. Every other religion posits teaching that is the result of a private encounter with God or a private idea. The founder experiences a private dream. The private divine encounter, a private idea, tells the public. But Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was there in public with a public ministry, making public claims and doing public works. And then he was publicly executed. And then he publicly appeared, resurrected to the public. And after his ascension, the public witnesses told the public what they saw. Only Christianity, therefore, can be publicly, demonstrably falsified. So let's try this, okay? Let's, let's test this. If I decided to start a religion, deceptively or not, I would not make false claims to recent historic events that didn't happen. Why? Because I know that those claims could be tested. Also, I would not give details about the time, place, and the people involved like Luke so carefully does. More than that, I would not invite contemporaries to investigate these claims. Okay, so I want us to think about this, how crazy it is if Christianity was actually false that it ended up being spread across the world. Okay, for, for example, if I were to say today that in 1980 there was a man named Craig who had been born in Calhoun, Louisiana and traveled about the Shreveport area doing many miracles and gaining a significant following, this could easily be falsified. I went back, I went into Wikipedia to look up who was the governor at that time in Louisiana. So I would not say that David Treen, the governor of Louisiana, is that how you say his name? Whatever. Along with Bennett Johnston, U.S. Senator from Louisiana, had Craig executed. I wouldn't claim that if it wasn't true. I would not detail that the electrocution was in Angola on April 3rd, 1983 at 9 a.m. I wouldn't claim that Craig rose from the dead and gained a significant following throughout Shreveport, which has spread across America. Why wouldn't I make these claims as the foundation of my new religion? Because they can be easily tested and falsified. This religion could not possibly get off the ground. 
I were to make up a religion, all the events which support the religion, if any, would be private and beyond testing. It's remarkable. The New Testament is true. This record is true. There really was a man by the name of Jesus who came out of Nazareth in Galilee claiming to be the Son of God. There really were incredible miracles done at his word and by his hand. He really did die. And on the third day, he really did rise. And it is true that he is the one Lord and Savior of all who will believe. Luke wants Theophilus and he wants you and I to know that we can be certain of the truth. But there's something else too that he wants us to be certain of. He wants you and I to be certain of the worth of Jesus. You know what? It does not take the Holy Spirit for someone to be convinced about the truth of Jesus. I mean, these historic historic facts and so on. It doesn't. In fact, there are many, many people who are convinced of the truth of Jesus who are not convinced of the worth of Jesus. And those who are convinced of the truth but not of the worth of Jesus, are likely professing Christians, but are not Christians, are not true believers. They are not true followers of Jesus Christ. It does not take the Holy Spirit to convince someone of the truth of Jesus, but nobody ever will believe in the worth of Jesus apart from the divine work of the Holy Spirit of God in their hearts to open up their eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It must be the Holy Spirit. Why does Theophilus need to be convinced and why do we need to be convinced of the worth of Christ? Why do we need to be certain? Because a lot of bad things happen when you follow Jesus. Were you taught that in Sunday school? Are we faithful to include in our message about Christ that there is going to be a cost to following Jesus? We're going to see very soon that, um, not today, but in a few weeks, Simeon, when he held the infant Jesus in his arms, he said, this one, your son, Mary and Joseph, is set for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Jesus is the dividing line. Jesus himself said, you think that I came to bring peace? No, I tell you, rather division. And he goes on to spell out the division in families, in 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 households, three against two and two against three and so on. He tells his disciples, you can't follow me without counting the cost. And you are going to be tempted to turn back. You're going to be tempted to take your hand off the plow and look back. And he says, those who do are not worthy of the kingdom of God. 
He tells his disciples very clearly that they must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow him. Is that the message that we are putting out? Is it the message that you heard when you were coming up in Sunday school? Maybe, likely not. But if we're going to follow, we need to be certain of the worth of Jesus. We are going to turn back. Because the way is going to be hard. Not only will there be the heat of persecution, and I believe that's coming. I think the signs are in place. I don't know. I'm not giving any kind of specific time frame on that. But I think persecution is coming to us who have had it easy pretty much ever since the founding of this country. There's something else, too. You know, until persecution comes... We've got it good in this country, don't we? It's, it's the pleasures. Do you remember when Jesus told the, the parable in Luke chapter 8, it's also in Matthew 12 or 13, the parable of the seed and the soils. There's, there's four different kinds of ground. The farmer reaches into his, his satchel at his side and he flings out the seed and the seed falls on four different types of soil. There's the hardened path where the, the, the birds come in, they steal the seed real quickly. There's the seed that falls on the shallow soil that has the underlying rock and this, the seed can't take, the roots can't go deep so it springs up quick but then it, it withers, you know, under the heat and Jesus said that represents persecution. But until we're there, I think we're in that other type of soil that is clogged with the thorns. And Jesus said that that seed will sprout but the thorns, which are the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world, will choke out the life of that little plant before it can reach maturity. And I think that's where we are right now. There are pleasures as old, of, as, as, old as the earth that want to take the place of Jesus. I mean, good things that want to be ultimate things in our lives. And that we're inclined to. And then there's other pleasures that aren't as old as the earth, but they're as old as the fall. And then there are those pretty new things. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff out there these days. All that wants to take the place, first place of Jesus in our hearts. So when we consider the pleasures and we consider the persecutions, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth being marginalized? Is he worth being put to the edges of society? Is he worth first place when we have all of this other really cool stuff that we could give our lives to, put every pursuit after? And that's going to be for youth. Youth and retirees too. We all know the temptation to have something, a pleasure greater than Jesus in our lives. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth living for? Is Jesus worth dying for? We need to be certain. And I believe with all my heart that if you will enter into the book of Luke with me and the Holy Spirit will open your eyes you will find that Christ 
is irresistible. And that's going to be the name of our series. Irresistible Jesus. You can be so certain of his love. A love that compels you to give your own life for him. Because he first loved you and laid down his life for you. Luke especially writes to the outcast and the downcast. To those who are far off from Jesus. To those on the lower strata of society. Even while it looks like Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus he is called. Because he's a man of rank, some kind of nobleman. He's on the upper strata of society. But Luke, as a Gentile himself, has in mind the outcast. You know, the tax collector that everybody scorns. Or the woman who is simply known as a sinner. People like Zacchaeus, the prodigal son, and so on. And Luke wants us to be certain of the mercy and the tenderness and the love of Jesus. He presents to us a man, we'll see this, I can't wait, who, it says, he rebukes the fever. Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. It says, Jesus rebuked the fever. Jesus encounters a man who's demon-possessed. Jesus rebukes the demon. Jesus stands up in the boat, and he rebukes the wind. Who talks to the wind? He rebukes the waves. Who does this? But Jesus does. At his word, the demon flies. The fever dies. The dead are raised. All at his word. It's the irresistible Christ. And everyone who has their eyes and ears open can't help but be drawn to Christ into a following Him all their lives. Let's pray. Father, You know every single heart that's here. And, and You know, Father, the hearts that are all in. You know those who maybe they don't have, uh, they perhaps wouldn't say it with any kind of bravado now, but you know the ones, Father, who would right now, faced with the choice of life and death, choose death to be faithful to Jesus. And you know the others, Father, other hearts that are more timid, and, and want to be that one who would die for Christ, but are also worried about persecution and distracted by the lures and the, the pleasures of this world. Lord, we all, we confess to you and we plead before you, we all want to be certain, not only of the truth of Jesus, what he said, what he did, that all of these things actually happened. But we want to be certain of the worth of Christ in our hearts. The very core of who we are, we want that rock-solid, unshakable conviction. So I pray, Father, that from week to week, day to day, as we meditate upon the book of Luke, I pray that every single person here would just find that every resistance to Jesus falls. Every wall that we have 
just crumbles before him because he is irresistible. We can't stay away. We must be drawn close. We must come to him. We must walk with Jesus in step with the Spirit. Would you please accomplish that in the lives of your people? I ask in Christ's name. Amen.